Hello, everyone. Welcome to the California Association of Tactical Officers podcast, where we discuss a variety of SWAT-related topics. We believe tactics are a science, and the art is in how we apply those tactics. My name is Marcus Sprague. And I'm Brent Stratton. In this episode, I sit down with Brent and Adam, and we discuss Charles Sid Hale's book, Sound Doctrine, a Tactical Primer. Many of us at Cato, including many of the board of directors, believe that if you were to only read one book that would explain the principles behind the procedures that you have spent your career learning, it would be Sound Doctrine. For many of us, this was the beginning of our journey into studying the science behind tactics. So in this episode, we briefly discuss our journeys and how we found Sound Doctrine, what it meant to us. We discuss uh, the first couple chapters of Sound Doctrine in hopes that we could expose you a little bit to why we feel this could be one of the most important books that you read. I've asked you both to join me for a quick pre-Christmas podcast and uh, something that's near and dear to all of our hearts, but we all took a different journey to get there. And that is to talk about sound doctrine. And so I wanted to have a chat uh, with you guys about uh, some takeaways. Brent and I are going to try to break down the book into different sections. There's no way we can do this thing justice. If there's only one book I would tell you to read, if you want to be a better tactician or understand the principles of managing conflicts, uh, it would be sound doctrine. Uh, would you guys agree with that? Yes. Yeah, ab- absolutely, man. Uh, this is this is the thing that really helps to shape where our, where our tactics come from and where our thought process comes from. So, I think it's my opinion singularly the most important book if you want to understand tactics and deployment behind them and and the reason for for their use. So, it's a great opportunity to be able to to talk about the book and, and why it's important. We're not going to go nuts on it as far as uh, reading you the entire book, but it is uh, the basic principles that Sid distilled from War College and basically principles that can guide us in solving problems, in this particular case, tactical problems. But let's talk a little bit about chapter one. So um, you're doing okay if the acknowledgements in the book start off with Colonel Tim Anderson. And uh, it goes without saying that the Colonel's the reason why we're all here. Um, Odenthal, Hillman, Steve Imes, Dennis Bean, Ron McCarthy. These are, these are legends uh, in the law enforcement tactical community that all helped uh, give Sid feedback. You got Ken Hubbs, the founder of Cato bunch of folks uh, involved in reading this and your forward is by Daryl Gates. So you already, you know, you've got some heavy hitters uh, involved in making sure this book is good. So talk a little bit about uh, the introduction and uh, maybe some of you don't need introductions. Uh, in this case, uh, I would encourage you to even read the acknowledgements because uh, it talks a lot about uh, who was involved in this book, but the introduction starts off with law enforcement, uh, we don't usually think about law enforcement tactical operations as war. They share many of the same attributes. For example, both law enforcement and military operations are attempts at attaining or restoring social harmony and both attempt to impose the will of a tactical commander on an adversary. In the free world, both exist and serve 
at the pleasure of the citizenry and as such are subject to political, social, and moral constraints. So we're right back to Sir Robert Peel. So it's a little history, a little philosophy about where we came from in there and a really great reminder. But again, a lot of these lessons are learned from warfare, right? That's conflict. And uh, I know it's not popular in our profession right now to talk about warfare. And that's because sometimes our profession confuses what we do with warfare. I'm not trying to say that we're at war. What I'm trying to say is that the principles of managing conflict that we learned through thousands of years of warfare can be applied in tactical operations today. Is there a better way to say that? No, I think it's, I think it's a great way to put it. Like I said, we're, we're definitely not um, advocating for being at war or that we're trying to um, militarize or anything like that or, or treat citizens as if they're combatants or anything like that. It's just the principles um, are similar in how you handle conflict and how you hand, handle adversarial conflict uh, for sure. So that's really where the value of this uh, book comes from for me. And when you, like, yeah, I agree completely when you're talking about the acknowledgements and the names of the people that are there, you know, uh, it's, these are some of the people that we've had the, the pleasure of learning from um, throughout the, the last several years in Cato and, and understanding their experience and, and what that, that relates to. So that the intro really means a lot. And when you start talking about the forward from Chief Gates, one of the things that he writes in there is certainly the need for a thorough understanding of fundamental tactical concepts has never been greater. Uh, that's something that you could write today. And it's still it's still just as true. You know, he talks about the, the benefit to understanding these principles as a focus on understanding why they're important. And I go back to something that Travis Norton said several podcasts ago is that we do a really good job in law enforcement of training the how and not the why. And so this is really gets to the, the ground level, the base component of why we do things. Whereas oftentimes in law enforcement, we do train uh, the how, how to shoot, how to move, how to do these things. But for, uh, the, for a line level supervisor, for those in command, understanding why things are done is is much more important and marcus when you get into um it's page 12 of my book but this is where uh, chief gates says um it begins with a general overview of why there is so much misunderstanding of whether tactics are an art or a science i mean that's the intro that you've that you've got in our podcast man this is where uh, this is where this stuff comes from so uh it's really exciting to be able to talk about this stuff i kind of geek out on it and i'm thankful to uh, to been taught um some of this stuff and i, and I know you you've played a big part in teaching a lot of that for for me as well but i, I know you've learned a lot from sid nody and, and tim anderson so i'm thankful for that yeah and uh this isn't a podcast about us but it is pretty interesting the three of us have wildly different journeys and uh, how we all came to meet each other and how we all came to be students of this and in uh, particularly Adam, Brent and I have known each other for a while, but again, uh, we just met uh, during SLP one. I walked in and saw this bald guy look broke down wearing uh, pleated khakis and some uh, tassel loafers. And I thought this guy's going somewhere. This guy's going to be somebody. And uh, I hope he knows how to make a good latte. And uh, 
and that, you know, that, that was a result of me meeting Tim and Sid earlier on in life and, and saying yes, every opportunity I had next, you know, I find myself uh, meeting guys like Mike Hillman and Ron McCarthy and learning from them directly. And then in that journey, we are uh, trying to apply these principles to crowd control and demonstration response. And we listen to this guy that Travis knew and said, this guy's kind of smart. He seems like he knows what he's talking about. So I start listening to Sharky and uh, I think it was a CPOA webinar. Sid's on there listening and we're like, holy cow, man, this guy, this guy's definitely a tax science guy. This guy's definitely a sound doctoring guy. Like he's, he's, he's applying these principles. He's not using exactly all the same words we do. And, uh, and so I was really interested. I didn't tell Adam I was going to ask him this, by the way. So I'm really interested, Adam, in your in your journey of uh, how you ended up. And then I think you should tell a story about how you got your copy of Sound Doctrine and and then what your thoughts on it were. Because for me, it was a, a huge aha moment, not because I understood it, just because I'm like, I know this is what I needed to know. You know, it's funny because I, I'd never seen anything like this but I felt like this is what I've been looking for, this material that uh, Sid and company put together. I've been looking for this my whole law enforcement career, which really, to Brent's point, is, is the why, right? We're really good at containing call-out, really good at barricades and car chases, but really zooming out a level or two and understanding the why so we can adapt to these problems better. So I got into this, I must have been 10 years ago, where I got somebody's copy of a PowerPoint presentation on their take on tax science. And I just read it and read it and read it. And then in 2016, I was put in charge of this large scale event. We had to use roughly 900 officers to respond to a problem. And I started applying the concepts that I had read. And after that, it was one crowd control event after another and one riot event after another. And um, I got asked to do this presentation that you and Sid and some others were on. And you guys reached out and that's what made that connection. Then I became aware of the book. I had no idea there was all this literature on tax science. And then you guys just pulled me in. And it's, I just think it's such a brilliant collection of material that should be mandatory reading for anybody in law enforcement, certainly law enforcement leadership, because the, the fundamentals that are in this literature can be applied to any problem, whether it's natural disaster, you know, uh, some sort of natural conflict, if it's something that's adversarial when we're dealing with a suspect or multiple suspects, something where the tempo is something very quick, like an active shooter, something where it slows down like a barricade, or something that's incredibly fluid, like a protest that may be inching towards riot, and then inches away from it, and then suddenly tips into something that we maybe didn't expect or plan for. And I think applying the concepts in sound doctrine and in field command it just makes things, I don't want to say simpler, but it makes things simpler. It really codifies and puts into context all the things, the tactics that we use, the strategies that we want to employ. And to Brent's point, with law enforcement evolving the way it is and the demands changing, um, the expectations changing and the job being harder, this text has never been more relevant, right? Because if you know the why, then you can adapt the hows and the whats. Right. And that's kind of a throwback to Simon Sinek's The Golden Circle, the why, the how, and the what. You gotta start with why. And this book really is that why that everything can can fall from. Yeah, and just to to drive that home a little bit, 
uh, page 16. While there's an immense library of research and documentation is available for a student of military science, relatively little is available for a student of law enforcement tactics. What has been written for law enforcement seldom deals with any underlying principles, but instead describes techniques and methods that have proven useful in past operations. It is here we become aware of an immense incongruity. While a military commander is required to devote a significant amount of effort to attain the essential knowledge and skills to manage tactical situations, it is not expected of a law enforcement commander. This is in spite of the fact that the situations encountered in law enforcement occur more frequently and are just as life-threatening. In fact, a law enforcement commander may even be rebuffed for devoting too much time and energy to a discipline regarded at best as only marginally related to law enforcement. This has resulted in failures in law enforcement tactical operations of unprecedented magnitude. Yeah, but talking about that, it reminds me of a, of a phrase that I heard Gordon Graham talked about, about high risk, low frequency events. And that's really what um, I, I uh, read this. That's exactly what I um, what I think of. And I think that's a common mistake that we do face in law enforcement, especially for the vast majority of agencies who might have collateral assignment teams. So oh, there's not that many call outs and you're, you're training this often. But really, the for me, the value that I see for collateral assignment teams is being able to gain that level of proficiency and then being able to take it back to patrol and take it back to their primary assignments and being able to help in those regards. That way, this truly isn't a low frequency event. These are um, high risk, high frequency events. It might be low frequency that the entirety of the team is together, unless you work at a larger agency with, with full-time teams, but really taking uh what you're learning here and these principles and applying them every day, we believe that, right, our, our tactics belong to everyone. Um, they belong to patrol officers. They belong to traffic officers and how we approach things. They belong to, to detectives and how they're doing their follow-up. So this is not something where you can devote too much time or energy to being able to understand these things. This is something that is a main ingredient. It's a key component of everything that, uh, that relates to our job and, and how we in, interact and interface with the public. So this is, um, it's, it's important stuff. And it relates to, it relates to, to you, you know, anyone who's listening, whatever it is that your job um, is, and whatever your assignment is, this is for you. And I, you know, to Brent's point, whatever your assignment is, that's really key. And I know most of the people listening to this are going to have uh, some sort of ties to a tactical team. Uh, I've never been a part of a SWAT team or a tactical team. That's what separates me from a lot of the other guys at Cato is um, I've always been more of a patrol operations guy and been stuck in some pretty kind of hairy scenarios. But SWAT was never my thing. While I was interested, I was never an operator. And I think it's important for people who are not part of a tactical component to know this is a police problem. It's not a SWAT problem because if you're a full-time team or you're a part-time team, the first 20 minutes, the first half an hour, the chances of you having a tactical team on scene, really, really small. You may have somebody who's part of a, a part-time team or you think about what happened at the regional center in San Bernardino and you had some operators down the street training active shooter when this kicked off. I mean, that kind of stuff is not, that's the exception, not the rule. It's really gonna be patrol or maybe some investigators who are serving a warrant or responding to a call for help who have to work through this problem in the initial phases. And by the time SWAT's gotten there, 
a lot of the times the situation stabilized to some degree. I mean, so many decisions have been made um, that have taken the event to one direction or another, right? These are choose your own adventure scenarios. And there's going to be, what's what Sid say, the future is plural, right? So however we react or however we respond is going to dramatically change the outcome of the event or set up the outcome of the event for the tactical team when they arrive. So it is just as relevant, if not more so, for your true first responders, right? The sergeant and his or her patrol team or the detective element who may be serving a warrant or a fourth waiver search or parole search, if we still do those, right? Um, and setting things up for success from the front end rather than trying to get the train back on the tracks after it's derailed because we made bad decisions or we planned poorly or we didn't see the possible pitfalls and trap doors because we didn't even bother looking. We just figured out eh, it's always worked out before. Let's just do what we've always done. And then we've completely missed some of those risk factors. We haven't mitigated the problems. And that's really, I think, one of the best things about this book is it really lays out, regardless of what the problem is, the things you should be looking for, the planning phase, the execution phase, and then the aftermath. And it's just rinse and repeat. And once you start practicing it, it becomes second nature. And it really takes a lot of the risk out of the equation and it helps us optimize our response regardless of what the problem in front of us is. Yeah, lately I've been really hung up on the amount of friction that we induce in our own operations and that a lot of the chaos is, is a direct result of our uncoordinated and undisciplined responses. And so when you say that, it really makes me think a lot about what do we do pre-event planning wise to reduce those friction points? So uh, back to the book real quick. Uh, thank you, Adam. Uh, back to the book real quick. The book addresses three predominant issues. The first concerns whether good tactics are an art or a science. This is more important than you might at first think. If tactics are an art, then the qualities needed for success will be naturally endowed. If, however, they are a science, then there are principles that can be learned and applied. Depending upon your understanding, therefore, tactical commanders would be selected either because of talent and natural ability or their knowledge and experience. So, Marcus, which are they, in your opinion? Well, Brent, I think, uh, I think I've said, <laughs> if I said this once, I've said it for 37 episodes. That's right. Let's hear that, it. That the, there is a science and the art is in the application of that science. And as Sid likes to say, it's a soft science. It's not a, it's not a hard science. It's a, it's not math. It's, it's a softer science because there's so many variables in every single operation. So uh, again, I, I think that's great that the first issue that he addresses, but really, if you think about it, it's a funny thing uh, about not just Sid, but these guys, like we got to meet in the Cato community, they say something that sounds so simple and endearing, you know, like Chief Phil Hansen. And then the more you pick apart that statement, you realize that there's years of wisdom packed into that little simple statement. And dude, let me give you an example of one. Tim Anderson taught me this and we all learned it in kindergarten, right? Round peg, round hole, square peg, square hole. The more I deal with um, people and personnel in my agency and the assignment of people and those who do well in certain areas, and don't do well here, I realize I'm more thankful than anything else that he taught me 
that's that's the most important thing that he taught me is just that basic principle of dealing with with people right it sounds so sounds so basic everybody says yeah of course but identifying where somebody is a good fit within an organization has such a lasting impact on their performance how the organization performs but also their overall wellness and how they enjoy and perform and the morale component for them. So that's a little bit different, but when you said that, that really resonated with me. That was the first thing that popped in my mind of something really simple that's been said that uh, um, that these guys taught us that it really helps me damn near every day. It, it sounds so basic, right? In the kindergarten aspect of it, the, the round peg, round hole. And you look at these books and you look at books written by guys like Jim Mattis, right? Four-star general, former secretary of defense and call sign chaos. He talks about being brilliant in the basics. This stuff, isn't advanced. We can have advanced scenarios, but if you're brilliant in the basics, you can work through them with relative ease. You know, if, if you have somebody who's, you know, they're just not a good fit for tactical operations, but they're great behind a desk chasing financial crimes, then great. That's where they should be. There's no, there, there's no, there's nothing wrong with that. Right. I mean, there really isn't. And the same is true with some of the other things that are discussed throughout this book, where if you're brilliant in the basics, if you have a fundamental understanding of this stuff, the complexity of the problem is largely irrelevant. And to your point, that's where the science meets the art. You know, with part of the thing with science is there can be a wrong answer. And in the tactics that we use, there certainly are wrong answers. We see that in the form of officers getting injured or killed. We see that in the form of lawsuits. We see that in the form of legislation, which we've covered on some of these podcasts. So there's a wrong answer. The art comes into applying it correctly. It's like a pilot landing a plane, right? There are certain fundamentals you have to do to land a plane. And you look at Sully, Sullenberger, landing his plane on the Hudson River. And he talks about there are three basic things he needed to do to land a plane successfully on the river. He had to keep the wings level. He had to keep the nose slightly up. He had to maintain a certain airspeed so he wouldn't, the plane wouldn't fall out of the sky after a stall. Those three fundamental things, and he could solve one of the most complicated problems there is. And again, in Sid's book, he talks about the one thing that's always present that you can't account for with the science, and that's chance, right? So it could just be a bad day to be Sully Sullenberger trying to land the plane on the Hudson, and it just doesn't work because despite the science, there's just something there that there's just an X factor, right? The same is true in, in with all of this. There's a science. If you're good at it, if you're, you don't even have to be fluent in it. You just have to know enough to get around in places where it's spoken. And you can solve most of your problems. And the better you get, the more there's an art to it, right? You're good at the basics and how you use that, those basics to solve those problems really speaks to your, your application of the art. That's, that's huge. And you're saying some things that really kind of resonate with me. And I really like that because what, what you're saying, it, it increases your likelihood of success, right? There's not, and, and Marcus, that kind of goes back to what your, your quote was said, that this is, this is why it's a soft science and not a hard science, because it's increasing our chances of success. It's our increasing the likelihood that we're going to come out of this thing with a positive uh, resolution, or at least a resolution that, that we wanted and that we've designed, but it's not guaranteed that that's going to happen. Like you said, that's the, uh, the X factor there. So those are, that's some really good insight um, that, that resonates with me. And, you know, you touched on Call Sign Chaos. I think that is one of the most significant books I've read um, and, and helped shape my thought process as well. I mean, it, when it's, it's sound doctrine, it's extreme ownership on a personal and professional side of the house. It's Call Sign Chaos uh, for me is some of the, the 
best books that are out there. And so Marcus and I have talked about this for a while. So um, we would love the opportunity at some point someday to get to speak with General Mattis about that book and what, you know, maybe with, with anything else in the Cato community. So if there's anybody out there that's listening, because I'm, I'm fairly certain General Mattis doesn't listen to the Cato podcast, but if he did, sir, we would love <laughs> nothing more than be able to speak to you about Call Sign Chaos. That's my plea, that's my pitch. <laughs> it's kind of hard to draw the comparison between you know, Sid and General Mattis, just because it seems like they're operating in different worlds, but it's really not. It's very, very similar. A problem is a problem. And I think one of the greatest things, you look at call sign chaos and you look at sound doctrine field command. And if you've read this, when you read any after action, whether it's a protest event, whether it's a riot, whether it's an active shooter, whatever, HRT problem, it gives you a context. It gives you a framework that you can look at all these through and say, ah, we didn't account for this. We didn't account for that. This is where this fits in. This is where that fits in. So it, it really is an overarching philosophy, which I think is just, it's so so critical if you're going to operate this kind of environment, this kind of problem. That is a fantastic segue, Adam. So the second issue that this book addresses is whether there are common elements in all situations that require a tactical intervention. If there are, then basic assumptions and fundamental principles can be developed and incorporated into a tactical plan. Not only would this greatly simplify the process, but it would provide a common understanding of how to deal with these complex problems. These principles can then provide a handle to quickly grasp and manage tactical intervention strategies, which is really what you guys just talked about. Once it's a common language and a common ruler and the funny part of it is, is that we don't teach it. We don't, we, we don't teach that. And as a profession, I, I still don't know why. Since we already covered that part, let me, let me cover uh, the third section and see what you guys think. The last issue attempts to identify those fundamental functions that must work in order for a plan to succeed. Like the first issue, this one is much more important and complicated than it might at first seem since it attempts to answer the questions, is there a right way to do these things? And when should we do them? The questions have universal application in that they apply to everything from gathering and evaluating intelligence to formulating and implementing an effective strategy. So thoughts on that one? Because I know Brent uh, grinded on this uh, a little bit, but how do we as a profession switch from focusing so much on procedure to principle, how do we implement principle-based training and, and not, not even maybe by the hours? Now, I would argue that there's no way that my agency, you two both work for bigger agencies than I do, uh, would have the time and budget to invest in leadership development in the manner in which the military does. And that it's our responsibility if this is our profession and we're gonna take on a leadership role it, it, it's our duty to understand and, and learn these principles and practice them because in, in reality, occasionally lives are at stake and not understanding it because we were busy doesn't seem like a great excuse when you're looking at somebody's loved one. Yeah, I, this section, I mean, it resonates with me and I don't have the solution. I don't know what... I don't know how to get there. I, I don't know what it is, but um, yeah, it is. It's something that I've definitely been grinding on for a long time. Still am because I don't have 
a real resolution to it. I don't believe that the ratio of uh, 10 to training time is sufficient in most organizations, but I also don't know that you could ever really achieve that balance because there's just, you still have to get out there and, and be able to do the job. So I, I don't have, I don't have a solution um, to, to what that is. I just know that the only answer is to take a proactive stance in your own training, your own beliefs and understanding what the principles are and how you can try to make things uh, better for yourself and your understanding within your department, your organization. And, you know, Cato is a resource to be able to, to do that for you. And you've already taken the first step by being part of this podcast and listening and buy this book and, and take those, those types of steps to, to get there. Uh, we've uh, talked about Jim Mattis and Sid Hill a little bit today. And, you know, we talk about how the most formidable leaders are students of the profession and, that's really something that we should ingrain from the beginning is that just because you finished an academy or you went through sergeant school or whatever, that doesn't end there. And it's incumbent upon all of us to be ready for whatever situation comes our way because people are counting on us. It's not just the person who's in danger, but when you're in a leadership position, a sergeant, lieutenant, captain, and on, you've got cops, sometimes hundreds or thousands of cops who are relying upon you making good decisions. And I, I think sometimes we take it for granted and we say, oh, you know, we'll do what we've always done. How do we implement this is, it's a harder question, but it really, it's an individual journey, right? If you're a sergeant and you've got three, five, 10 people working for you, well, guess what? That's maybe five, 10 people that you have a captive audience with that maybe you do lineup training with. Or instead of everybody hiding at the end of shift for you know the last half an hour, 45 minutes, trying not to get the next call, maybe you take some time to either go through a tabletop exercise or talk about some of these scenarios. I remember as a new cop, we hadn't been taught officer rescues at the field level. And we had a SWAT officer who took us to an abandoned parking lot or an empty parking lot rather, and basically ran us through officer rescue scenarios. And I remember that you know 15 years later because he took the time to do this because he thought it was important that we all know that. That, that I think is important is when you think about who's ever listening to this podcast, what's your horsepower? If you're a sergeant, how many people in your department can tell you what to do? That number may be like three, a captain, lieutenant, and a chief. On a larger agency, you may, like LA sheriffs, you may have 5,000 people who have to listen to you if you're a lieutenant. And maybe you take orders from roughly two dozen people. So you have a larger sphere of influence than sometimes you realize it's just a matter of how are you going to use that sphere of influence and are you going to take things like this and make it important to your folks and introduce them to it, maybe get them familiar with it or any of the other things that are competing for an officer's time and interest right now, whether that's RIPA or any of this legislation that's coming, we can't lose sight of what Brent talked about, which is the basics. The fundamental role of police is to protect people from those who would do them harm. You know, you can call the fire department or a social worker for a number of different problems, but if you've got a guy with a gun or a knife or who's out there doing violence, there's only one entity you're going to call, and that's law enforcement. So we have to be prepared to meet that primary basic function that we exist for. Adam, it's, you're really saying some things that, are, that kind of really resonate with me, because when you're speaking, I'm thinking about a patrol shift, and I think about 
I look back and I feel like I missed a lot of opportunities as a patrol sergeant that, like I said, you got an extra couple minutes at briefing. Anybody have anything? Nope. Okay. Hey, have a safe shift. I'll see you out there on the calls or whatever. Instead of taking being purposeful with our time for these opportunities and using those as learning experiences, or like you said, the last 15 or 20 minutes of a shift, instead of hoping that that next call doesn't come in. So your shift doesn't get extended, utilizing that downtime and being proactive with that. I think that's really a missing uh, component, something I've missed um, and opportunities that I've missed that I really wish I would have been wiser and taken those opportunities there, but it, it helps to focus me to, to try not to miss those opportunities going forward and not realizing how impactful you can be. And I, I believe that personally as well, that, you know, leadership doesn't come by virtue of rank um, by any means. Um, I know people of rank who are not good leaders. I know people who are leaders with no rank. It's kind of a, like a command and control analogy, right? But we all have spheres of influence um, and, and ways that you can be impactful within your organization, within your life, within your team. And please don't miss those opportunities to be impactful in, in, doing, um, in doing what you're doing. So the last sentence of this introduction says that mastery of these subjects ultimately calls for a lifetime of scholarly pursuit and just like leadership one never really gets there one never really arrives it's a lifetime journey uh, i feel embarrassed that i didn't know this stuff when i first learned this i thought to myself why am i just hearing about this this late in my career because in reality Adam, you brought this up earlier. It's the, it's the first 60 minutes of an event, which is never rarely a SWAT deal. Um, it's whoever's working deal. It's a come as you are party deal. And we should be teaching just the, the basic time and terrain analysis and, and obstacles and, and using that stuff to your advantage to everybody. So it, it, it is interesting that as a profession, we, we fail to do that. And, and actually, Sid talks about that in the book, and he talks about three things of why tactical principles are ignored. The first is that these are uh, low-frequency events. They occupy only a small percentage of the total efforts of an agency. Hence, the argument that tactical operations occupy a smaller amount of time and effort is appropriate. For instance, if this function occupies only about 10% of the total time and effort of an agency, then only 10% should be allocated for training and preparation. In reality, however, even this amount is more than almost any department spends for this type of training. True sophistication in tactical principles requires an organized and concentrated effort in mastering the requisite knowledge and skills. So think about that. Uh, how much time... I know at, uh, up here in Northern California, we get about four hours in sergeant school. We get about eight hours in lieutenant school. And uh, I haven't, I will never make it to captain. Um, I've already peaked past my abilities. So Brent, uh, what do you get in captain school for tactical strategies, principle-based decisions? Did you skip captain school, Brent? Did you just go straight to? Well, there's an interesting, uh, interesting thought. He did, here. Adam, he skipped captain school. Well, He's only because there is no captain. Well, executive, you executive, you, executive. No, you go, sorry. you go, you go to when you're a lieutenant, which we've all yeah. been there. Where yeah. you go to management school, right? And 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 I and I've taught in management school, and that's it. Yeah. Once you're a captain, you, it, the next step is you're going for your executive certification. If you start ascending to uh, you know an executive spot, so once you've gone through post lieutenant school, unless you decided to go to FBI National Academy or Perf Smith or some of these other kind of schools or something, 
you know, elective, like a Cato conference or, you know, a course like that, you, you're expected to know this stuff. And then, you know, if you've been an investigator your whole career, or you're more administratively savvy than field operations, you may find yourself responsible for a division or the better half of a department on a smaller agency. And this may not be your bag. But at this point in your career, if you've ascended to that level, you can't afford not to know this stuff. You just, you can't. When we say high consequence, high consequence in lives and lawsuits and people's careers. And that's one of the things that Sid talks about when he talks about risks, right? Your personal risk, risk to others, organizational risk. These are all very real things that as you ascend the ranks, you become a risk manager. And so how do you mitigate that risk? Well, that largely comes through knowledge and practice, which is, again, takes us back to the book where it's fundamentally, if you engage in these practices, you're probably going to be ahead of the game. You're stacking the deck in your favor for you and your cops and for the public who's, you know, going to be dealing with the consequences of your action or interaction. Yeah, you really, I mean, it's funny, Mark, because you hit me right between the eyes with that because I was thinking through it. And then I started thinking big picture across the profession as you said that. And it sounded so simple when you said it. And I'm like, there isn't, there is no captain school. There isn't those things, just like Adam said, it's just, it, it gets that point that, so what, what do you, what do you do if you're not dedicated to learning about this stuff and you're learning it on a macro level, because you're no longer a true tactician in the world of how we've, how you've traditionally come up through your department, this learning, this stuff is even more critical for you than ever before. Um, and that's not to say that there's not, you know, management executive executive related stuff that's out there the executive development course through post is good stuff right cal police chiefs is putting on uh good stuff but still there's nothing really designed for some of that that senior management stuff and that and that kind of gets to where you're talking about page 24 it talks about these your skills can tend to deteriorate from lack of use they're almost always diminished and you wonder why these skills are lacking in managers and executives who are then called upon to handle the largest and most complex tactical operations. So it's really, um, it's almost, it's almost backwards, right? right? I mean, like let's, let's take the guy that hasn't done it in a long time. who does it the least amount of frequency and is involved in it. And let's put him in charge of it when it only happens once. Right. He talks well, about that at the top of this page. It says the problem's even more aggravating when individuals who've been away from assignments. So even if you had that experience and that assignments requiring tactical expertise for a number of years, they rise in rank and then they're required to exercise a diminished or non-existent skill in a high profile operation. So it, uh, it is, you're, you're, you're saying, we don't, and we don't, ha we don't have that. We don't do a good job at, the, at being able to do that. And, and I'll talk a little bit about what that looks like for us practically here, right? That's one of the, the big challenges that when we look across the landscape of Cato and how we want to be of service, we want to serve the line level operator and be able to have um, classes and training about the technical skill that comes along with that. That's a big portion of who we are and we're never going to change that, right? But we also need to have a component for line level supervision, entry level management, being able to understand some of these things. But we really need to get to that third prong too, being able to help provide training and support for executives and senior executives within an organization that are looking across the landscape big picture of their organization and how this stuff interfaces so you know as it relates to us in Cato those are really three prongs that we constantly have to figure out how we can train and provide and be of service to be able to to, to get to that point it's 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 an issue well, well and Brent I, I, one of the best parts I think in this book in the introductions on I think it's page 27 and it's without a thorough understanding of fundamental tactical principles, it's impossible to tell if an operation was successful 
because of the tactics or just favorable circumstances. In fact, fortuitous circumstances are frequently mistaken for tactical acumen. In the words of one law enforcement instructor, we confuse good luck with good tactics. And I know Marcus touched on that earlier, but how many times people who have some tactical acumen have looked at a scenario and said, we, we got so lucky, we got by by the skin of our teeth, if not for the stupidity of our adversary. I mean, yeah. And then everyone else like, hey, that was great. We should do that again. And we're thinking, no, we don't ever want to do that again. So if right. you're in management, and I know a lot of the people listening to this are not in management, but if you are in management, how do you know if an event was successful? Is it based upon the results or is it based upon a repeatable set of tactics and planning so that if this happens again, you know we're going to have a similar outcome versus the only reason this worked out is because our adversary decided to give up yeah. or because, yeah. you know, some other bit of chance or luck. I, I, I'll take luck 10 times out of 10, but we want to stack the deck in our favor, right? And how do you know if you've stacked the deck in your favor or if you just got lucky and you drew, you know, the, the card you're looking for on the river on the very last possible moment? Sure. That's why the process is important, man. The process is every bit as important and even more important than the results. We always have to be result and outcome oriented and driven, of course, but it's it's the process and we have to be able to, to build and shape that process exactly right. And when you said that good luck and good tactics, I smiled because that goes back to one of the basic things we talked about. Round peg, round hole, square peg, square hole. Is it good luck? You know, good luck or good tactics. It's an art. It's a science. Is it art or a science? And when we're working through these things, it's some of these basic simple principles that, that we keep coming back to. So this is really, really good stuff. And this is a great, I, I think it, it's a, I hope that the listener here finds that this is a great um, introduction um, and first chapter to uh, to sound doctrine and that we've been able to help kind of distill it down a little bit. And, and if, if nothing else, that's what I, I kind of hope we can do is distill this down because uh, Sid is next level smart in how he writes. And sometimes when he speaks, I gotta, I gotta hear it. And I gotta think about it two or three or four times and being able to, to break it down to where a dummy like me can understand it. So, uh, it helps I, me to, to talk. Yeah, it's I, almost like, uh, this can be like sound, sound doctrine for dummies. <laughs> yeah. 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 So I, uh, I remember coming back from SLP and being exhausted, like mentally exhausted because there was drinking through a fire hose and, I would be, would be asleep by 9 PM. Now we might've, we might've had happy hour at five, but by nine, you know, I'm mentally exhausted trying to digest all this stuff. But uh, so two things to address your, your issue, just to follow up before we do these last two, two uh, obstacles. One is uh, Cato is developing that curriculum. We have our critical incident leadership class, which is a two day class um, heavy in decision-making exercises and table toss, all based on uh, the, the, the fundamental decision-making that you learn in tax science and sound doctrine. And that's for sergeants and lieutenants. And then uh, we're developing a post-certified eight-hour tactical strategies uh, course, which is similar to the one you saw down at your management school, uh, Adam, and the one I'm involved in uh, up here in Northern California. And uh, that's basically a tactical strategy, kind of common ruler, common language way to dissect these problems as a lieutenant or a captain to uh, make sure we're going on the right path. So let's talk about the other two obstacles real quick, as we just literally did a podcast on the introduction to sound doctrine, right? So uh, uh, I'm telling you, 
this book, you're going to read this book. And there's not a lot of wasted words in it. It's designed to be a textbook, but uh, hopefully if it clicks for you, you'll, you'll see the value that, that uh, I think the three of us definitely have seen. So when we look at the problems, the reason why we have these issues, why they're ignored, we talked about three of them. The second reason comes from the controversy that surrounds many of these operations. With the possible exception of traffic tickets, police tactical incidents attract more criticism than any other single facet of a police department's many functions. Charges that the tactics chosen were inadequate, too quick, too slow, too violent, they were executed too soon or too late, or only a few of the many accusations leveled at officers and agencies. The lack of knowledge or skills notwithstanding, people who wouldn't dream of criticizing a short order cook have no ambivalence or hesitation in criticizing something as complex as tactics. Consequently, it is disheartening to prepare for something that is seen as a no-win situation, no matter what happens. This results in a crude and superficial view of what is required for sound tactical decision-making. Any misunderstanding occurs as to whether tactics are more of an art or a science. Tactics are often perceived to be an art, which in turn contributes to a belief that tactics and tacticians are subjective and theoretical. While it is certainly true that intuition is a valuable asset to a tactician, it is not nearly as important as a thorough knowledge of the fundamental principles upon which good tactics are founded. So the last sentence is what I have underlined in my book as well here. You know, it shows you that it is not nearly as important as a thorough knowledge of the fundamental principles upon which tactics are founded. I mean, it gets back to what we talked about in, you know, the very introductory component to this is being able to understand the why as opposed to uh, compose, yeah, as opposed to the how. So I think it's also understanding that sometimes there are no win scenarios right? Sometimes it's a really, really bad day. And we as, as cops like to think that we can solve every problem, right? And that there is a solution. And, and you know, not to say that this is the, you know, it's kind of a downer, but if you've done everything you can do in the context of good tactics, understanding the why, the how, and the what, you know, sometimes you've done all you can do. And I think that's, that's kind of what this speaks to. Right. But how do you know if you've done everything you can, if you don't have a solid understanding of the basics? Yeah. And, and I think we forget. And uh, recently at my agency, we've had this discussion a lot. I think we forget that you can do everything right and still lose. We can, we can do everything right and have a bad outcome. We can do everything right and have our own people injured. And it's something that I think our, our leadership and our profession has failed to educate community leaders in the situations and that we're dealing with. And it's funny because it comes up every couple of months, came up in an article I read yesterday where there was a call to action to have activists go back to the simulator, you know, and, and we've all seen this in our profession where uh, we bring in uh, someone who is not an advocate of the police and we stick them in front of the simulator and they shoot everybody almost every time. And they, they, they walk away. If they're honest, they're intellectually honest. They talk about it. Hey, you know what? I had no idea. Well, you had to make a decision that fast. And I shot a guy that was holding a cell phone and, and all those kind of things that happen in the simulator. But like, we don't talk about that stuff enough and how quick it really does take. And then throw in uh, the, the expectations that TV has 
that we're going to solve this problem in 45 minutes with two to three commercials and uh, say some really cool stuff and nobody gets hurt or in video games where video games have bad guys and good guys doing stuff that isn't even physically possible. And uh, all that changes the expectation of the community of how we can really handle these kind of events. And that's kind of where we're at right now, right? We're, we're seeing some what's called de-policing and we're seeing the results of that throughout the country. And uh, that's managing expectations. Like, Hey, you know, these, these problems do often require law enforcement intervention of some kind, but they're, they don't necessarily solve them. You know, it's uh, it is pretty funny about that. So I think we need to remind ourselves that, that, Hey, we got to do, we can do everything right and still not get the outcome we want. That's not necessarily the measure of success. Yeah, you know, it's actually a, a Captain Picard quote from Star Trek. It's possible to make no mistakes and still lose. That's not weakness. That's life. And that's right on the nose, right? This is why we want to stack the odds in our favor, because that's all we can do. All Sully can do to land that plane is what he knows to do, to be good at the basics, to read the situation correctly. You know, talking about Coup d'oil, which is beyond the, the introduction to this book. And, but to your point about what we're dealing with now in law enforcement is the margin for error is greatly diminished, right? Like you could use bad tactics and then have an outcome, maybe an officer involved shooting that with better tactics could have been prevented or with an officer injury or God forbid an officer death that could have been prevented with proper tactics. And now with body cameras, with cell phones and all this other stuff, we've talked about this ad nauseum, the margin for error is so slim and the patience behind that, those errors is so slim. And now you're seeing in vicarious liability, you're talking about Supreme Court decisions where they weigh the, the decision-making process and the tactics that led to a deadly force confrontation. That's why the, the fudge factor isn't what it was 10 or 20 years ago. And I don't think that's a bad thing in some respects. We should be the professionals, right? We should be the ones who are using all the tactics that are at our disposal and all the options that we have. There are times when we're not going to have the opportunity to use them, but when we do have them, have the time to, to use certain tactics, it really is incumbent upon us as the professionals, the ones who are entrusted with these tools and the ability to use force, including taking someone's life, to make the best possible decisions and not to just wing it, not to just fake it. We should be fluent or at least familiar with the science so that we can resolve these situations successfully minimal injury to the bad guy or to the suspect and no injury to the cops. And in the rare occasions where it's possible to make no mistakes and still lose, that should be the exception, right? That really should be the exception and not the rule in modern law enforcement. And you should be able to explain that, right? You should be able to explain that like the professional that you are with uh, that common language kind of common ruler. So let's, let's, uh, before we close out, let's talk about the third obstacle again, for we're, we're discussing why tactical principles are ignored. And the third obstacle, the egos of many law enforcement officers make it difficult to admit a deficiency in the tactical arena. Excelling in the tactical environment is seen as an inherent skill necessary to be known as a good street cop. To admit that one is not competent can be embarrassing to the point of humiliation. This problem is even more aggravating when individuals who have been away from assignments requiring tactical expertise for a number of years rise in rank and then are required to exercise a diminished or non-existent skill in a high-profile operation. Indeed, an irony is revealed when we realize the more complex and high-profile the operation, the more likely these same people will be called upon to handle it. 
A related factor that contributes to this lack of tactical knowledge is that virtually no law enforcement promotional examination tests a candidate's tactical proficiency. After demonstrating some fundamental skills at an entry level, an officer can move through the ranks and never again be called upon to demonstrate even the most rudimentary understanding of tactical fundamentals. As a result, tactical skills and knowledge do not improve with more responsibility. In fact, since these skills tend to deteriorate from lack of use, they are almost always diminished. It is any wonder that these skills are lacking in the managers and executives who are then called upon to handle the largest and most complex tactical operations. These three reasons create an inability or unwillingness to diligently and earnestly seek scientific solutions for law enforcement problems that require a tactical intervention. The failures have resulted not only in unprecedented civil damages, but a far more costly loss of human life and public respect. According to one disaster management expert, the consequences of these failures result in, quote, tactical fiascos of biblical proportions, end quote. A learning disability is tragic in children, especially when it goes undetected. It is no less tragic in law enforcement agencies where it is almost always goes undetected and even if discovered is usually ignored. Thus, an unfortunate paradox is revealed in that one law enforcement's most exposed and vulnerable functions is also one of its most neglected. That's kind of how, how uh, he closes that chapter, but those are those, are those three obstacles. And I think uh, at least within the Cato community, what I love about Cato and the community is that uh, I don't you know, work at the busiest agency in the state of California, but I can call those, those people through Cato and get advice and go, hey, you've handled 200 of these in the last year. What do you think? What am I, what am I missing? I can call uh, somebody who handled nine hostage rescues in the last 60 days, like nine. I, in my town, we've had like two. So my community doesn't care that I've only had two. My community wants me to handle it just as good as that team that's had nine last month. And so that's what I, one of the strengths I love about Cato. I can call Sid. I can call Mike Hillman. I, I can ask Reed about Ron McCarthy. I can ask Ron McCarthy, you know, to learn, to learn from Adam, how, how uh, his agency handles demonstrations and, and the different levels of responses and the science behind that, that works, that works no matter where we are to fit to your deal. So uh, closing thoughts. Uh, again, we just wanted to talk a little bit about sound doctrine, uh, why we think uh, it's important. We're not getting paid to talk about sound doctrine. Uh, I pay full retail for all my, my Sid Hale books, and uh, that's money well, well vested. And uh, I pass them out to all the guys that lead our team and expect them to read them. And for me, it's kind of the, the introduction to uh, self-study in, in becoming a subject matter expert in handling tactical problems. You know, Marcus, one of the things that you said as we're closing this out is and we're all part of the problem, right? Because we may have been really, really good at something 10 years ago, but another one of those quotes is, and I remember which philosopher it was, no person steps in the same river twice. It's not the same river and he's not the same person. So we have people who may have been tactical greats 10 years ago, 20 years ago, but those same tactics don't apply today. They're outdated, they're antiquated. Um, and so it's important for us, like you said, not to sit on our laurels and to be familiar with case law, to understand the environment, the ecosystem that we operate in, and to talk to each other and say, no, 
we, we tried that and it doesn't work. And here are some of the pitfalls to it because, you know, we may have been good at something in the past, but we're always looking forward, right? We're looking to the past for guidance, but always forward. That's good. Well said, guys. I think uh, this has been an incredibly useful session for me to be able to listen and talk about and learn and read. And uh, I'm thankful for the application. So I hope those that are listening today were able to uh, take a little something from it as well. And we'll uh, we'll do part two. I'm not sure how many series uh, it will take to make it through Sound Doctrine, but it certainly is going to be more than one since we made it through the introduction in chapter one today. But we'll get into some of those principles and uh, and we'll do a couple of these and uh, sprinkle some of these intermittently throughout some of the other issues uh, that we have coming up and and things that we want to we want to talk about. You know, coming ahead, we want to talk about. Um, some tactical medical uh, Tim's best best practice stuff. We want to talk about Assembly Bill 481 and what exactly that looks like. And so, uh, there's a few things that we have uh, we have coming down the pipe that we'll uh, we'll be talking about that we're hopeful is is uh, useful to you as we wind down 2021 with good things coming in 2022. Looking for a new website to be launched and uh, really developing some new platforms. Uh, and so we're. Marcus touched on some new classes that are coming. So we're always, always working to try to move the needle and move things forward a little bit. So uh, stay safe out there. Um, your work is very, very important. And uh, we're, we're grateful, we're thankful for you. And as always, we're proud to stand with you. Thank you for listening to the Cato Podcast. To become a member of Cato, check out our website at catonews.org. If you have a topic suggestion, please send them to podcast at catonews.org. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with a friend and rate us on the platform of your choice.